Let's go to the Lord in prayer again. God, as we turn to your word, I pray that you will open ears this morning. God, may you draw us to yourself. May you draw all of our attention, all of our thoughts, all of our desires toward you. You can do that. And I ask in your grace and mercy that you do it for each of us here this morning. God, I pray that this word will do a wondrous work within each of us, God. That we will take in what you have said and we will not forget it, but we will submit and obey it. God, you are a good and gracious God. And I pray that this day will be like no other, that you will continue your work among your people, that you will strengthen us, God. God, as you do it for us, I pray that you'll do it for Lethia College Park Church. I pray that you will use Pastor Rob this morning as he brings forth your word. I pray it will not fall on deaf ears, but it will resonate among your people there at Alethia College Park Church. God, I pray that visitors that they have will, and regular attendees will be drawn into your presence and they will see Jesus in all of his glory. God, I pray for Pastor Rob and his family. Lord, I pray that you will sustain them and strengthen them in their service to you. God, I pray that you will surround Pastor Rob with men who will not only uplift him and keep him going in the same direction, but God, those who will have the strength and the courage to correct if needed, hold him to the truths of the word. God, I pray that you'll be with his wife. I pray that you will strengthen her, that you'll have other women come alongside her and strengthen her, remind her of the joy that she has in the Lord. And God, save their precious boys. I pray that you'll do that through them and to the rest of that fellowship, God, all the people in that precious church. God, we pray that a church will be planted among the way in China. God, I pray that you will open their eyes to the false religion that they have been so deeply trapped in. God, they think that what they're doing is getting them closer to you, but all it's doing is keeping them from you. God, break them of those chains. I pray for believers, both men and women, maybe from this fellowship, who will go among the way and they will tell them the good news of Jesus Christ and that you will do a wondrous work. Lord, for the precious few way believers, I pray that you will strengthen them, God. Lord, they are so outnumbered. I pray that you will strengthen them to service, that you will sustain them. When the days look dark and they they look bleak and long, God, they feel like failures. I pray that your spirit will sustain them and bring them, God, into a place of worship again. God, I pray that the way will look to the Quran as they open it and as they read it, that they will see the truth of the real Jesus as they read the words. And that will draw them to the real Word of God. 
that their eyes will be open to its truth and that they will be saved. Lord, I thank you for our friends who are working in places we can't talk about. I thank you for the boldness that you've given them and that they have forsaken everything else in order to go to the hard places, the undisclosed locations, in order for your good news to be heard. God, I pray that you will remind them this morning that the fruit is your doing, that you have called them to faithfulness. God, I pray that you will sustain them as they have left family and everything that's familiar, that they are truly living a hard life. God, I pray that your goodness will sustain them and they'll be satisfied in that good work. Lord, I thank you for all these things and I ask that as we go through your word, help us not to miss anything in it. Help us to hear what we need to hear this morning. Lord, and do a work in our hearts. We don't want to stay the same. We want to become more like your son. In your precious name we pray. Amen. There is a significant part to the Christian life that is often misunderstood. The world at best is confused by it. Generally, they reject it. And some even mock it. Even in the church, there is a part of the Christian faith that is neglected. When it should, in fact, affect how you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, approach life. How you face each and every day. And it is the conviction of sin. It's often seen as negative. All of us have times and maybe most of us, most of the time, don't want to go there. We don't like feeling bad about ourselves. We don't want to talk about our mistakes and the sin that we have. There's so much out there that tells us, don't even deal with the negatives in your life. Focus on the positive and that's how you'll be happy and better. But being convicted of sin is actually a good place for a person to be. You see, when a person is convicted of their sin, it leads to repentance to a gracious God who is merciful. So if you this morning have become burdened by your sin, you feel far from God this morning. I hope this text ministers to your soul because it is a prayer of repentance. It teaches us what repenting looks like. When you look at your life, is there anything that you regret about it? Is there something in your past or maybe something you're dealing with now that if given the opportunity to do it over, you would somehow do it differently? I think we all would say yes. And I'd say 
we all would, would say yes to right now. None of us are perfect. And the truth is, none of us can do that. No one can go back into their past and correct our wrongs. And none of us can go back and take the sin out of our own hearts. We can't go back into our past and change a single thing. Whatever mess there is, however you've gotten to where you are, even if you've never received a ticket in your life, or even if you're considered the religious person at work, or you have a great devotion time in the Lord this past week, we've all done wrong things. Repentance deals with those wrongs. It deals with the negatives within us. And I'm not talking about those things that have been done to you that you're dealing with. No, repentance is about your own sin and the guilt from it. We are all in need of repentance, unbeliever and believer alike. And for us as believers, it is central to our life. At times, the Christian life has been called a life of repentance. It is a genuine mark of God's people. All throughout Scripture, repentance is talked about. And in Acts 17.30, it says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Everyone needs to repent. And we need to do it regularly. So I'm thankful for Nehemiah chapter 9. It is meant to help us this morning. We grow in Christ's likeness by feasting on passages like this one. I hope that you will eat and you will savor it this morning. Nehemiah 9 comes obviously after chapter 8 where the people had a revival at the water gate. They stood for half the day listening to the books of the law being read and it was explained to them. And the people began to mourn and weep. But the priest said to the people, No, 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 don't mourn. Rejoice. The Feast of Booths is upon us. This is a time of joy and celebration. And so they greatly rejoiced in God. There is much to celebrate in Him and to be thankful for. And Scripture has continued to be read day after day, and now three and a half weeks later, after the feast, as the scriptures are read for a quarter of the day, they think again of their sin and their iniquities. These sins have not been atoned for. As they hear scripture and are honest about themselves, there is sorrow for sin. They look at who they are and what has come of them and they pray to God. They say back to God the history of their nation that He established and the many times they broke His law and the covenant that He set and how God reacted. 
The prayer basically summarizes the entire Old Testament in a single prayer. They do this, they bring up how God is because that is exactly how they need Him to be. And it's how we need Him to be. Listen or read along in how they describe their situation in verses 36 and 37. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of our own sin, we are in great distress. This is what sin does. Sin puts us in distress. It's a heavy weight on our shoulders that we can't get rid of. This is where we end up because of our own sin and iniquity that each of us have. And we need reprieve. We need rescued from it. There may be a time when we try to ignore it. We may try to cover it up and there may be a season of exchanging the bad deeds with good deeds. But nothing we do will take the guilt of our sin away. And if it's not dealt with, we will be crushed by it. We are in distress. There's only one way. One person, really who can do something about it. Only God can deal with our sin in a way that treats sin for what it is and at the same time grant mercy and forgiveness. These sinful, guilt-ridden people so desperately need the God who's talked about in the Old Testament. Not just the New Testament, Okay, what they've been listening to, what's been read to them for three and a half weeks, is the Old Testament. Remember, at this time, the Old Testament was the Scriptures. They need a God who is willing and able to look upon a rebellious people in their misery and a hopeless situation that they've created and who makes a way for them to confess and repent and heal from their brokenness. They have been unfaithful. And in hearing the Scriptures, there is conviction. And repentance is sought. There is nothing within them that will restore their hearts. They turn to God in prayer and they repent. Let's see how they do that. We're going to look at the prayer in four parts. First, there's the need for repentance. Then there's repenting that follows the storyline given to us in Scripture. Then a plea for mercy. And what this passage then sets up for us is the need for a Savior who will overcome all sin and keep God's name exalted in glory and highest praise. The first part, the need for repentance, 
is in verses 1 through 5. The people were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and earth or ash were on their heads. After about a month of reading God's word, the people had become broken over their sin. The fasting, sackcloth, and ashes were a visible sign of an inward condition of their heart. They were expressing deep regret and sorrow. The fasting meant that they were not satisfied how they were in their condition. Their lives needed more than just the temporary pleasures of the day. The sackcloth was a symbol of mourning. It was a a coarse cloth made from goat's hair and it was black in, in color. They wore it to show grief over what had come of them. And putting ashes on top of their heads signify that they were worthless before God. After the reading of God's word, the people were faced with the reality of who they are before the holy God. And they've come undone. Who are you before God? When when you look at yourself, have you had a time when you have grieved over your sin? Have you mourned over what you've done against a holy God? Now, mind you, wearing the sackcloth and ashes and fasting isn't what helped the people. It did nothing for them. God was not moved because they did this. It was a genuine expression of how they felt about themselves before God. This tells us then what repentance is not. Repentance is not a flippant, superficial response to an offense that you've done. And you don't just say, I'm sorry to someone so that you then have the freedom to go on and do things that you really want to do. No, repentance is deep anguish over offending the God who does good and who shares His goodness with us. Have you come to God like that? Do you need to grieve over your sin today? Is your heart broken because you've offended God? Are you convicted of your wayward ways and see your need of seeking God's forgiveness? In obedience to God's law, the people broke off relationships with non-Jews. For God to make His dwelling among them and for them to be His people, separating from what God would make clean from unclean. The people confess their own sin and their ancestors. They're confessing and repenting who they were as a people. And they worship God. And in their worship of God, there is deep sorrow in what they've done. They have not given Him the glory that He should receive. They are unworthy of all that God is. This leads to verses 6-31 through where the Levites lead them in a prayer 
of repentance. And really, it begins at the end of verse 5. It is a repenting that follows the path of Scripture. It is a penitential prayer. In this prayer, they recount who God is and who they are in view of Scripture. It blends together the praise for God and confession of sin against Him. They begin with adoration because they heard again that He is glorious. His name is above all and He deserves the highest praise. Do you worship God with the highest praise? Do you give Him every ounce of who you are? If not, there is a need for repentance. This is like the Lord's Prayer in Matthew where Jesus teaches us to begin the same way. Just simply telling back to God who He is. They not only begin with God, notice how much of this prayer is about God. This text is is full of Him. It teaches us about Him. And this is what prayer should be. It should be all about God. How wrong we are if we go in prayer thinking of ourselves and who we are and what we need. The purpose of prayer is speaking to the God of the universe. Over and over in this prayer, it says you in their prayer to God. When you've been convicted of your sin, you understand who you are and you understand who God is. Your whole being is now focused on Him. When you come to a true understanding of who God is, everything else just kind of parts ways and it's you and Him and there's nothing else that comes into your thinking. Nothing else that takes hold of your heart. And you see the real need that you have is nothing of this world. You need forgiveness from this God. And that's where the people are. So much of this prayer is speaking the truth to God of who He is. It's confessing the truth in repentance. They say, you are the Lord, you alone. There is none like you. No one else compares to you. You are in a class all by yourself. You are transcendent from all there is. You are superior to everything. When we begin prayer this way, as we should, as we're taught, it puts everything in the right line of how things should be. God says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, all your soul, all that you are. And when we begin prayer with God, it begins to set all of that right in line. It puts us in reverent humility. We're not talking to a fellow human being. We're not talking to someone who's just really nice and he just he's like a Santa Claus who comes and says, sit on my lap and I'll give you whatever you ask. We're not talking to someone like that. This is the God of the universe. 
God is greater than all there is. We are the ones who need Him. We are here for Him. He is the center of the universe. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He has always existed and has always been God. Do you realize that? Before your parents ever brought you into this world, He was God. Before the creation of the world, before time existed, He was God. So who are we? Who are we to be flippant with the Almighty God? Therefore, our prayers ought to first and foremost give Him honor and glory. In a prayer of repentance, we would do well to begin with giving Him the credit of all that we are, of all that there is, of simply even being able to come to Him in prayer. And we should approach Him in a manner that declares that He is the most important. He is the greatest. They go on to recognize God's sovereignty over all. That He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. That's above the earth, on the earth, and the waters under the earth. All exist because of God. Then in verses 7 to 16, they give a record of God's power and grace with the Jews in history. How He came to them and made them His people. And all that He did in and for His people, His greatness is praised. This describes in detail what they meant back in verse 5. His his awesome power in being the foundation of the world. His righteousness that is pure and blameless and His forever faithfulness and keeping of His covenant. In verse 8, we're told of God's special covenant with His people that begins with Abraham. This is central to the Bible. This covenantal relationship is what keeps them as His people. It's not what they do. They can't do what they need to do to be His people. We can't do what we need to do to be His people. It is solely by the goodness and faithfulness of God in a relationship that He has ordained and that He keeps in His covenant. We're told of Abraham's heart being found faithful to God. It's God's faithfulness in Abraham that stirs a faithfulness among him and among all his people. At the end of verse 8, God's righteousness is mentioned. God is always right. There is nothing wrong in Him. He he never makes mistakes. He never errs. He never messes up. His ways are perfect. And what He does is simply an expression of who He is. He is righteous without flaws. He's just and He defines justice. We only know what is right and just because whatever is right and just has God's thumbprint on it. The prayer then goes on through the miraculous deliverance in the Exodus. 
and the wandering in the wilderness and God's compassion and His care for His people and the victory over those who think they're great. What God did should have moved His people toward a posture of thankfulness and trusted obedience. Instead, for the next 16 verses, from verses 16 to 31, there's these cycles of rebellion and mercy. There's six of them. Here's where we see the main theme of the prayer developed. The people are called stiff-necked. Have you ever been called stubborn? I have, and I am. I have to confess that to God day in and day out. And I think that's something we all probably need to confess and pray. Instead of being grateful and trusting God, they're stiff-necked. Like an animal being pulled in a direction and resisting. It's an attitude of stubborn pride. Do you know anyone like that? I bet you do when you walk in front of the mirror. This is all of us. This is all of us here. In verses 16 and 17, in spite of all that God has done, the people forgot how awesome God is. How He came through for them and made His name great among them. While He freed them from slavery, instead, they want to return to it. At the end of verse 17, we're told, But you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even though the people failed, God kept forgiving them. He showed His love to them. He did not give them what they deserved. He never left them. In verses 18 to 25, while God stayed faithful, the people made a golden calf and committed idolatry. God kept on forgiving and took care of them in the desert. Despite our sin, God is gracious to us. But even with grace, God's people still give in to sin. And yet God continues to be gracious and forgiving. He gave the people manna to eat, water when they were thirsty, clothes that didn't wear out, their feet didn't swell, and all the walking in the heat. And He took them to the land He promised. God promised and God delivered. He gave it to them. At the end of verse 25, we're told why. We're told why even though the people were unfaithful and they committed idolatry and they worshipped other things other than the one who deserves worship, we're told why God remained faithful. It says, because of His great goodness. His great goodness. The people took God's goodness for granted though. Again, in verses 26 and 27. Verse 26 begins, 
Nevertheless. It's like, here we go again. The people are disobedient and rebel. They ignore his law. They kill the prophets. They committed great blasphemies. So God gave them over to their enemies. And that could have ended it there. God was just. He would have been just if he ended it there. But God heard them in their suffering, which they, they themselves had caused. And he had mercy on them. And not just his mercies. Look what it says. It's his great mercies. The judges came. They deserved this judgment. Yet God spared his people. The judgment was disciplined for them. His love does not forsake. It was to bring them back to him. There's a fourth cycle. In verse 28, the pattern repeats again. Once the affliction passes and things seem to go well, the people ignore God again. They forget their dependence on Him. So God sends their enemies again. And they're conquered. But the people cry out and God once again gives mercy. In verse 29 and first part of verse 30, the people are warned to turn back to God's law. Yet they ignore it. By now you think they would know that God means it when He says that He should be obeyed. But they dismiss it. They break His law. Their hearts are for themselves and not God. They're called stiff-necked once again. They are prideful, disobedient people. And God put up with it for a lot of years. But they wouldn't give ear at the end of verse 30. So God handed them over to the peoples of the lands. And in verse 31, God still with His what? With His great mercies doesn't make an end of His people. He doesn't forsake them. He gives grace and mercy. Now why did the people go through all of this in their prayer? Why did they pretty much give a summary of the Old Testament? What, what are they doing here? They are reminded of who God is. What He's like with His grace and mercy And it's what they need where they are. And friends, it's where we are. It's what we need where we are. We need reminded of who God is and who we are and the need for His mercy. They view themselves as a people who are in desperate need. And they have their eyes fully set rightly on God who's full of compassion and mercy. Genuine repentance confesses God and admits sin as it really is. They are appealing to the mercy of God because of their own sin. They are taking responsibility for themselves. It's all they have. 
This prayer to God is all they have, but you know what? It's also all they need. God's abundant mercy for sinners. He keeps loving, calling, and delivering them. He could have thrown his hands up and been done with them, but he didn't. And because he doesn't, in verses 32 to 38, they plea for his mercy. It's a petition to do it once again. God, we know that you have been abundant in your mercy before, and God, will you give it to us again? Will you come and restore us? Look at how they address God. Now, therefore, in light of all that you've done and what you continue to do, God, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. God, we need you. That's how we need to pray. God, I need you. Save us. Because of who you are, you are faithful to your own word. Remember your covenant with us. Don't turn away. Although you have every right to, deliver us from our own sin and misery that we've put ourselves into. You are a great, merciful God. They admit that God's judgment has been just and they deserve it. They had ignored His great goodness. There it is again. We can't just talk of God's attributes. There's not a word for who God is. All that He is, is great. His great goodness. They had become slaves again to a foreign power. They they had broken the covenant time and time again. But they're banking on the Lord to remain faithful. And He is. If He doesn't, it's the end for them. And friends, if God does not remain faithful to His Word, if He does not remain faithful to His covenant, it's the end for us as well. God, You've heard our cries before. Hear us again. Let us have Your great mercies again. Give us your love that's steadfast. We know that your great goodness is more than our great distress. You are our only deliverance from what we have done to ourselves. That's what they're praying. These are not just words, though, to these people. They're not just words that they're offered up. They are willing to put into action what they're saying. They really mean it from a heart that's full of regret and full of desire to be with God once again. And they're prepared to renew the covenant with God. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Yeah, this is beautiful, isn't it? This is beautiful. This is grace at work. Among God's people. From where they had come from to where they are now, they admit their sin and confess their need of God. They're pleading for mercy from the one who is full of mercy. 
But friend, this is only part of the story. The Old Testament is incomplete. The cycle will continue with a holy God and a sinful people. It will go on and on and on as long as God is patient. This has always been the case between God and sinful creatures. We are swayed by our own sin. In our own doing, we turn from God who is faithful and kind. And God in His righteousness must deal with our sin. This pattern can only stop if there's someone who can fulfill our part of the covenant. So for the good of our soul, we move onward to the one who made a new covenant, not in writing, but in his own blood. We move on to Jesus Christ. Only Jesus breaks this cycle. Because of Jesus in our worship, there is still repentance. There is repentance, but there's no more sorrow because he has given us his joy. He keeps the covenant for us. He upholds the righteousness of God and is the instrument of mercy for us. There's no judgment waiting for us. Our sin is atoned for. We repent in faith in Jesus and the great God of mercy by His grace forgives forever because of Jesus Christ. Jesus kept the law. He stayed pure. He always has God at the forefront of his mind. In his heart is always reverence and humility and love for the Father. He came and lived and died so that you can enjoy God's mercy for eternity. God restores all who confess that Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord. We find mercy in Jesus. You, this morning, can have mercy in Jesus Christ. The great God in His great goodness commands all people to repent. Just repent and receive mercy. Look to this prayer. Use this prayer. And then look to Jesus and receive great mercy. Let's pray.